Welcome to the Shift Method Podcast. I'm your host, Coach D. My goal is to shift the culture of health and fitness through evidence-based coaching and engaging content for the public and health fitness professionals alike. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you all enjoy this episode. What's good, everyone? Coach D here with the Shift Method Podcast. Hope everyone's having a great day. I get to say we have a doctor in the house today. This is very exciting. And he's going to not say, he's like, oh, call me this, call me that. I'm going to call him by his name because he's my friend. But just know, out of respect, we have a doctor on the podcast, which I'm very excited to talk about because as we see in the fitness industry, we're having a lot of changes where you know medicine is becoming a more integral part in how we look at practice and also how we look at you know our allied healthcare continuum and how we refer people out. The medical field is becoming ever more important with regards to health and fitness. And so having a medical professional on is something that I'm very excited about. Before I introduce my awesome guests, just a couple of reminders. This is episode number 51 of the Shift Method podcast coming out on Monday, September 11th. Uh, by now, the blog post number two on that kind of obesity series we got should be out. So be sure you all read that article and check out that video. Remember, we got a lot of podcasts outside of my guest interviews that where I kind of just talk about various topics. So we're on the obesity conversation here and that video should be up on Spotify and on YouTube. Uh, also the September newsletter will have already come out. So if you miss this one, no worries. You just head to the shiftmethod.org. As soon as you go onto the page, it'll ask you to just put your name and email and you can jump onto the monthly newsletter. All the content I create for YouTube and Spotify is there. Uh, any major updates, any sales that are going on for apparel or programs, you'll want to make sure you subscribe to that. So you get the latest and greatest of what's going on in my life and for the business. But enough about me. Y'all know basically all that stuff already. Uh, if you're a returning listener, welcome back. Thank you so much. If you're new, welcome to the podcast. This is episode again, number 51. And like I mentioned, we have a doctor here and this is someone who I got to know at my time at Purdue University. You know, if, if you can, if you can see my man here, he's got his personal training polo on and He's in Hawaii right now, as you can now, just kidding. It's just the background he's got on. But um, this is someone who I had the opportunity to work alongside with, uh, develop a good relationship with, with my time as GA at Purdue University. Um, he was a personal trainer and he had the opportunity to go to med school. And now he is uh, working through his residency and I'll let him kind of explain all his, his awesome and amazing background. And that is my friend, Dr. Puneet Vaez. Puneet, do you mind introducing yourself to the people, please? Sure, sure. Thank you so much, Damien, for that introduction. Um, my name is Kunitz. Um, that's what I will go by on the podcast. Um, but, but yeah, um, I had the opportunity to work with Damien at Purdue. Um, I'm a proud Boilermaker, so I know right. I did my medical school at Indiana University and love the program, great people, great training there. Um, but I brought this to make sure everyone knows that I still wear my uh, yes. boiler pride in the hospital. Yes. Um, and now I am uh, in Nashville at Vanderbilt Medical Center doing my residency training in uh, general surgery. Very nice. Very nice. And so, yeah, as Penny mentioned, you know, a very unique background, which I've, I've noticed is, you know, increasingly becoming more popular is having that blend of medicine with the personal training or just general fitness side of things. And so having someone is kind of like that, that dual threat where I talk about, you know, you have a dietitian who's a personal trainer, having someone who's a doctor and, a, and was a personal trainer. Uh, it's going to be cool to get a unique perspective in that regard. Um, but as always, you know, this is the shift method podcast. So we got to learn more about our guests and kind of their background in general. So 
Puni, you know, this would be a cool story for me to hear, man, because it's been a long time since we kind of talked about, you know, your background. How did you get into fitness, like personally for yourself? Like what was kind of that catalyst for you? Sure. Um, catalyst for me is maybe a sad story. I don't know. A uh, terrible football athlete um, <laughs> in high school, vastly undersized, trying to play uh, receiver at, I don't know, at that time, five, six, 130 pounds. Uh, not that I've grown too much since then, <laughs> but um, that's really what sparked my interest in um, fitness and exercise. Um, I had some fantastic strength and conditioning coaches in high school that really um, set the stage for detail oriented and evidence-based, um, exercise performance training. Um, and so I really dove into it. It didn't actually lead to a lot more playing time. Um, I can say, but it, it really kind of, um, set the footsteps for me moving forward and how I wanted to approach fitness and kind of, um, intertwine it into my own personal life. Yeah, yeah absolutely, man. And while, you know, you didn't make it to, you know, walk on at Purdue, you know, not a bad basketball player, man, not a bad basketball player at all. This man, he, uh, we, I didn't even realize it. We were just, you know, people who listen to the podcast, they know I love playing basketball. A couple of my friends have been on here, like Brendan Adams. They know we're, we're very competitive, uh, you know, recreational players, if you will. And one day I find out my friend Brendan's like, did you know Puneet plays? I'm like, what? And I go on the court, this man, he's got, He's got all the gear on. He's ready to go and he's freaking, you know, cooking it up on the court. So yeah, that was, that was very cool to find out that you were also interested in basketball and we got to play together a bit. Yeah, absolutely. My, you know, it might've been a better sport choice for me considering my frame, <laughs> but um, it was so much fun playing back at uh, Purdue. I miss those days a lot. Yeah, man. I, with how busy you are, I, I would imagine it's probably no, but do you have any time to still, to still play at all? I have not hooped in. Oh, that's depressing to think. Probably <laughs> close to a year, maybe a year and a half. Oh, um, man. It's difficult. You know, the Purdue gym had so many courts available so many. and people around. When I went to Indianapolis, you couldn't really find good courts for pickup mm. games. Um, and here so far in Nashville, I haven't quite found a little club center, but I'm looking. I'm looking for a little place to, to get some pickup ball again. Yeah, man. Well, if you ever take a little vacation down to Fort Lauderdale, Miami, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get some reps and it'll be fun. Oh, for sure. For yeah, sure. man. Yeah. Well, thank you for letting us know about that. Now, of course, obviously like we mentioned you were also a personal trainer. And so like you got into fitness, you know, you, you were interested in sports. What made you want to then transition into kind of like a little bit of a, of a career path early on of being a personal trainer? Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I started looking into some of the research and science behind it in high school, um, I kind of fell in love with the anatomy and physiology of um, exercise itself. Um, and I knew coming out of high school that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, however, the way that, that that education is set up, you have to do four years of undergraduate studies in something else um, prior to medical school. And so being a personal trainer was kind of like an avenue where I could impact people's physical lives and kind of be involved in their care um, in a different way prior to being a doctor or going to medical school. And so it was a neat way to, you know, see a lot of the parallels between medicine and personal training, motivational interviewing, mm -hmm. talking through, you know, barriers to exercise and really falling into the, the science behind it. And so 
that's kind of what got me into the space of personal training at first. Um, and definitely what's keeping me in it too, is, is that, that blend. Absolutely, man. Yeah. It's cool. You know, as, as I listen to some other people, like I fo follow the barbell medicine crew who they have a similar route where they are strength and conditioning coaches, mainly in the powerlifting world, but they do a, a wide spectrum of clientele. Um, as someone who is like up and coming and interested, like knowing from a young age, like I want to be in the medical field, be a doctor. That's cool. Cause it's like the best situation for practicing those soft skills and like your research, right. Your curiosity. So it's like, Hey, I have a client, you know, 40 year old female who has PCOS and I need to help her with some confidence issues she has in the gym. You build that motivational interviewing, which client and doctor, you know, you got, or patient and doctor, rather, you have to know those skills. You can't be a robot with people, but then also getting some soft exposure to different medications, different, you know, risk factors and medical issues that you on your own time were probably already preparing for, but you get like real life tests before you even get to like residency or get into medical school, which must've been, I imagine very beneficial for you in the long run. Oh, absolutely. I think the the, the softer skills um, of talking to clients or patients um, definitely is something that carried forward really well. Um, you get to, you, you really, I think what's, what was really cool to me is when you're, when you're in the medical school world, or even now as a physician, when you're talking to patients about, you know, that lifestyle modifications thing yes, that we yes. all like to say, um, you really get to, to have a different sense of what that means for a patient um, instead of just saying it or writing it down on a note, um, having that conversation as far as what does it mean for the patient? What are their actual tangible goals um, in those lifestyle modifications and how can we make it happen? Um, so I think it was really neat to see the other side of it before saying lifestyle modifications to see how clients would come to you and say, hey, this is you know, where I'm at in my physical health and I need to do X, Y, and Z to be in better shape, or these are my goals. Yeah. It gives so it you a really like, neat transition. Absolutely. It gives you like a training ground for how do I implement strategies to help people change behavior? Right. Cause I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, ultimately in medicine, you know, yes, obviously the, the prescription and the, and the regimens, et cetera, but you know, the medicine doesn't work if people don't take it or the regimen and the protocols don't work if people don't follow through. So ultimately as a doctor, the goal is to help people change and alter their behavior to be healthier and more health sustaining, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's the same thing for personal training, man. Like I say, you can write a great program, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if people don't follow it and if you can't help, and obviously there, there's complicated nuances with how to help facilitate behavior change, but if you can focus on that and help people change their behavior and make small incremental changes to work towards behavior change, that is what's going to be meaningful in the long term for people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's it's definitely those small steps and communicating. Yes. Um, you know what? You know the simple and small steps that people can take to move in that direction. Absolutely, man. Now, do you? I'm curious how this has kind of like maybe shaped your outlook. You know, I always ask people like their fitness philosophy, like what fitness or health means to them. Um, do you kind of have one as like from a trainer lens versus as like a medical lens or has it like, has your view on like health and fitness shifted as you've become a medical professional? Like, what does that look like for you? Um, I don't know that my philosophy or view has changed too much. Um, I think if I could phrase it, I, 
I like to think that a lot of the stuff that we do can be simplified um, from a personal training and a medical um, perspective that it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be something. And what I really try to, to harp on with clients or patients in that sense is that the research backs the simple stuff really well. Um, there's a lot of you know, research on a ton of different like supplements that you could take or mm-hmm. training pathways, training paradigms, you know, as far as maximizing muscle mass or fat loss or, you know, what have it. But the best research on the simple stuff, um, you know, walking 30 minutes a day, something like that, mm-hmm. um, as far as cardiovascular risk, uh, mortality and patient's quality of life that research is really good. And so what I like to emphasize is keeping it simple, do the basics first and and don't worry about all that stuff until you're really there. Absolutely. Yeah. I I forget where the acronym comes from, but I hear it all the time in in our industry is KISS. Keep it simple, stupid, right? Like keep it simple, stupid. For, for, you know, 80, 90% of people, especially if you're just like a trainer in the general population, you know, that's going to work and serve you very well. Like, obviously, when you're really into this, like you love, like you and I do, like the anatomy, the physiology, like you read these like cool training principles, these cool like metabolic pathways. You're like, wow, that's so amazing. But most people don't care about that as our clients or patients. And so our job is to like dumb it down and turn it into like, you need to walk for 30 minutes. Like, they don't care about ATP pathways and all that stuff. And in terms of programming, you know, I tell people, and this is not to diminish like what we as coaches do, because I think we're extremely valuable, but I think sometimes we try and I don't know if it's a lack of confidence as a young coach. It's like, we try to like overvalue what we do by making things complicated to seem like we're needed, if that makes sense. So it's like, Hey, rather than just like getting someone to lift twice a week, doing basic compound lifts, and then do conditioning, try and aim for those 150 minutes a week. It's like, no, we're going to do single leg BOSU ball pistol squats with your eyes closed. And it's like, okay, maybe that's fun for people, but why? Like you don't have to make yourself seem like this very unique person and that does unique things for the sake of being unique. Like if you do the basics and do it well and do those soft skills very well, for most people, your program doesn't matter so much so long as it's safe it's progressive over time and you're targeting the major pathways and muscle groups. That's really all that matters. And there's a lot of ways you can get there, but you don't have to overcomplicate it. I'd even argue in the athletic realm until you get to like the very high end athlete, like, you know, the Tyreek Hills and LeBron James that have like been training for so long and they have all like the repertoire and they have the muscle mass and everything like, okay, advanced principles can be beneficial for them. But a lot of youth athletes, a lot of like athletes that are starting out, like you still got to build a foundation and you don't need to do anything too crazy before you, you you need to like, you know, try and push them towards their goal. Just, just keep it relatively simple. Agreed. I could not second that as much as, as, a, as I would want to. Um, that is perfectly said. I think the only thing I would add is you mentioned like for, for um, some of our professional athletes that they may have some advanced principles. The only thing I would say is 99% of what they're doing is still the simple stuff. Yeah. And it's just that like 1% that they may tag on to doing some intricate training paradigm or pathway. Um, and so I think from, from our trainer's lens, we can really like take a step back and look and say, 
you know, seeing young trainers that may have these complicated uh, programs, you look at it and you can say, these are good. Yeah, if your yeah. client likes it, if they're excited about it, and if it's safe. But you might as well get away with four sets of time on back squat and you would be just fine. Um, but if you want to do the post two ball pistol squats with your eyes closed, you know, <laughs> and the patient or client is safe, by all means, um, I think it's reasonable. Um, and I think some of that comes with experience um, for young trainers as they start to realize, you know, the effect of what they're doing is really getting them that exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. And the the, the one caveat, because I've found myself doing this as a coach where I started off on the other end where it's like super advanced, got to do a bunch of stuff. And then I've gone to like the like super, super basic. It's like, you have to have a little bit of things that make it fun and exciting, even if it's not the most quote unquote evidence based because people aren't robots. Like I said, they can get bored. So adding things to make it fun and engaging is important, but you don't have to make everything like that all the time. You can find other ways to make it fun. You can do friendly competition with your client or, you know, with themselves where it's like, Hey, this was your number last time in this 500 meter row. Can you beat it? Or maybe it's the way you structure your workouts, whether it's supersets or circuits or, you know, changing up the like load to see if they can lift heavier. Like there's small things you can do that are still evidence-based that don't make your program look like a circus show, essentially. <laughs> Agree. Awesome, man. Well, thank you again for kind of sharing like your little background into, into fitness side of things. I want to kind of get into now the, the medical school side of it. So this is the first time I get to talk with someone in depth about, you know, how they got into med school and kind of like that process. And maybe if we got some listeners, cause a lot of them are exercise science or in the health field base, what that process might be like. Um, so we kind of talked a little bit about, you know, why you wanted to become a doctor. Do you have any like advice to like young students who are thinking about going to med school or who are kind of like starting their journey into med school that you wish you got when you were on your way up? Sure. Um, I think, you know, as far as advice that I could give is stick with it and don't be shocked by it being a long journey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that at the age of like 17 or 18, I thought, and maybe I was misinformed, um, but I thought that, you know, undergraduate and then medical school, it's eight years and I'm out, I'm on a boat and <laughs> enjoying my life as a doctor. Um, that's kind of like the, the conception I had. Um, it's obviously not what I valued in being a doctor, but it was kind of the, the image that I had created in my mind. Um, I'm not on a boat currently. I'm not actually in Hawaii. I was going to um, say. <laughs> I, I know. Um, <laughs> I have uh, several years of residency training, which um, I'm grateful for, and I wouldn't have it any other way. But I think at the age of 17 or 18, that was just something that I didn't really understand or anticipate. Um, as far as like the journey into medical school, I think if if I could ask myself to do one thing over again, um, really it would just be, you know, doing the things that I really want to do and making those passions that I have kind of line up well with um, my medical training. So I guess what I mean by that is personal training for me has been something that I thought that I would have to kind of separate from medical school. I thought, you know, I love personal training. I really enjoy like doing this, but 
the time for that is done, I am now in medical school and there won't be a way to kind of connect those worlds. Um, but I found a lot more like satisfaction and reward, like during my third and fourth year of medical school, when I just kind of said, screw it, let's see if we can just kind of do both at once and bring both worlds together. Um, and I think it accelerated my professional career in medicine and it gave me a lot of that reward and kind of filled the gap of what I felt like was missing. Yeah. And so I just wish I didn't wait till third year in medical school to do that. And just kind of right out of the gates coming out of Purdue was like, I'm going to keep going with this. Yeah. Um, and so that's the main advice I think I would have is you know, find your passions, whether they're in medicine or not, and try to keep them going because you can really lean on them when um, you're struggling with time or um, what have it in life. I love that, man. And, and to be blunt about this, you know, I am not as busy as a residency person or doctor right so i i can only imagine the time i'm we, before we got on the podcast and it's like first day off in 14 days i was like oh my god dude that's insane but um i think it's refreshing to hear about you know still making time for yourself and things that are important to you because what i always tell people and this isn't to be dismissive because i i've been there i i do 12 to 14 hour days I, I work sometimes seven days a week in some capacity and so i tell people it's you know make time you have to find ways to make time for it. And you're always going to be busy in one way or another, whether it's like, you know, if you're in college, obviously you have a little bit more freedom, give or take, or if you're in high school, you have a little more freedom, but by then you're still trying to figure out life. And so you're like, Oh, when I'm out of college, now you have a full-time job. Oh, you know, when I'm, when I'm comfortable with my job in two, three years, it's like, well, now you got a promotion and you're learning a new job. Oh, once I get settled in then now you have a, a spouse and a family. Oh, you know, when the kids are out of school, well, now there's your life. And so you you kept, you kept kicking the can down the road thinking that life was going to get, you know, simpler and not as busy when I'd argue probably the contrary for most things that time will still always find ways to slip away from you. And so making an effort and it doesn't have to be large. It doesn't have to be, you know, 10, 12 hours a day, just carving out those little spaces for yourself is, is going to be good for, you know, your mental health, just to help satisfy kind of that itch, whatever creative itch or self-pleasing itch that you may have and just better way for you to kind of live your life. So you don't feel like you're constantly having to push back the things that are important to you. Agreed. Agreed. I had this conversation with a uh, personal training client of mine who is a um, uh, two years behind. So I guess a third year medical student. And we were chatting about uh finding time to exercise and how the time's dwindling and I just don't have time now. And I completely understand, you know, I feel like, you know, I was there too, where you feel like the time is, you know, caving in on you and you don't have time to, you know, do the basics of life, let alone get some exercise. Um, and the conversation we had was, it's not going to necessarily get a whole lot better. Yeah. Um, you know, fourth year will come and then you'll have residency training. And, you know, for me, some days it's, doing 10 minutes of push-ups and planks before I go in um, in the morning yeah, and just kind of being reasonable that, you know, time is something that we're always going to battle. And I think sometimes, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes I feel like everyone's in their own little bubble of like being busy. Yes. Like I definitely feel like as a, when I was a med student, I was like, I'm way busier than anybody else. Like it, I might not have time to, but like the reality is like, 
like you're, maybe, but like at the same time, there's a lot of people that are really freaking busy too. You know, there are yeah. a lot of people that, you know, may, may say I have a nine to five job, but they have four kids and they take their kids to, you know, school in the morning, pick them up and, you know, are managing things as maybe a single parent. Like that's not my current life and obligations right now. Um, but it's somebody else's yeah. and that's probably just as busy or if not more or more stressful. So, um, I like to try and challenge people to get out of that bubble and Absolutely. say, you know, this might just be the way time exists for people. And we have to kind of control that to the best of our ability. No, hundred percent, man. I also really like to hear that. So correct me if I'm wrong. Do you say you're still have clients right now that you're actively training some people? I do. I do. Let's I, go. I am. I, am. I uh, started back up. Uh, six months ago. Yes. So I am picking up clients again, um, slowly. Um, I have two other personal trainers that are helping out with this. And so we're kind of grabbing some, uh, a little niche, I guess, in the personal training space between exercise and medicine. So it's, it's been exciting. Um, and, and a lot of fun, I think. That's amazing, man. I'm so, that makes me so excited. Cause again, I think that like Yes, the RD is really good too. That's like another dual threat, like I mentioned, but the doctor one is like, <laughs> that's so cool. It's like, oh, park you? Oh, let's talk about these medications. I I, I, can, I know a little bit more than your standard personal trainer. So that is like a really cool thing, man. Uh, is it online, in person, hybrid? How, how, what's like the structure look like for you? So it's it's online. Um, it's virtual. It's The website is path2.fit um is the website uh a name um and like you said it's i think the the really the cool thing or the thing that i'm super excited about is um kind of building that healthcare network um so you mentioned the park queue and as we know if we have a lot of risk factors on the park queue we suggest getting medical clearance and so this is something where in the space you know what we'll have is one of the personal trainers on our team will basically bring it forward and say, Hey, this park queue did not pass. And that comes to me. And then I get to have a phone to phone conversation with their primary care provider. And that conversation can be a little more um, informative for our clients um, with my background. And so it's something that I'm really excited about, about kind of connecting that space um, to help people get, safe and effective personal training um when they need it absolutely man and people don't realize you know sometimes the, the the seemingly simplest barriers are the ones that keep people from being active so like obviously from like a safety rule of thumb you know park you for those who don't know is a medical history questionnaire generally about seven ish questions give or take where it asks like you know do you have a heart problem or a breathing problem or anything with bone or joint issues and so generally if someone checks yes unless they do like a par med X where it like goes into further detail and you can kind of, you know, stipulate, Oh, this is okay. If they check, yes, they more or less have to go to their doctor. Now, thankfully today with, you know, the way we virtualized everything, it's a little bit easier. Maybe you can do a, a, a telehealth call or, or zoom and they can just fax it and sign it over. No problem. But that can still a lot of times be a barrier for people where as a trainer, you're like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta cover myself liability wise and protect my client slash patient to make sure they're safe. But now that I've told them, hey, you got to do this additional step, they, that may be the last time I hear from them, sadly. And, and it's happened you know, time and time again with myself as a young coach and with 
other coaches where they're like, Hey, I know we sent this person to get medical clearance. They ever get back. It's like, I can't get a hold of them. Maybe they're, you know, maybe it's a, a time thing where they're so busy and they like took that step. And now it's like one other thing. And they say, fuck it. Or it's a, a health insurance thing where they're like maybe transitioning where they don't have the cash right now to add that additional charge on their, on their, you know, lifestyle. And so having that like resource for you and your coaches, man, like that's really, really convenient. Um, yeah. It's something that I'm, I've gotten a lot of um, good feedback so far from um, and the, the um, primary care providers have been very responsive um, so far. Um, and as a personal trainer, I felt like sometimes when I made that phone call to, I think I maybe did it only a handful of times, um, making a phone call to a family practice doctor to say, hey, I've got, you know, so-and-so who is going to be a client of mine for personal training, wanted to chat about some things. I found it really hard. I don't know if you've had this, but I found it really hard to like actually get the doctor on the phone. Like, oh, yeah, it's extremely um, difficult. I would be talking to ancillary staff or yeah. somebody at the front desk and they'd write down like, you know, like, oh, I'll get the note. I'll get back to them. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I really never heard then. And that was, that was the end of it. And it was very discouraging. And to be honest, it led to me not making that phone call as many times. I would kind of wait to hear back from my client. I might reach out to my client again, but I didn't really feel like reaching out to the provider was as useful. Um, so far, um, the, the two times that I've done it um, early on so far, it's gone well. Um, and I think that having the background saying that, you know, I am another doctor in the space, I'm trying to talk about a patient and reframing it um, as like a patient rather than a client, I think has helped navigate that communication. Um, but we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm excited about you know where it'll be in the next several years. Yeah, man, that's, that's so, I'm so happy to hear that. It makes me very, very excited for you, man. Um, a little bit. So you're in Nashville, you're currently going mm -hmm. through residency. You said, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, surgery. Yes. What is that experience like so far? Can you kind of like go into like your role a little bit more and like what it's just what it's been like for you, man, to get and absorb everything? Sure. Um, for for anyone who doesn't know, I guess um, the pathway for for us um, out of medical school is we go into residency training, um, which is you're an MD or a DO, and you. Um, basically are able to practice under some set of supervision. And it's basically supervision to train and practice and learn over a set number of years. And so um, I pursued general surgery. So I am in Nashville at Vanderbilt for five to seven years um, where I will practice as a resident physician. Um, what that entails is it's supervision as appropriate. So um you know, a lot of what we do is we take care of patients preoperatively, postoperatively, and then in the operating room under supervision, we get to kind of train and learn to basically practice independently by the end of our um, residency training. It's a lot. I kind of say the learning curve is definitely steep. Um, you come out of medical school and you think you know things, um, and then day one, you're like, 
trying to log on to the computer and <laughs> there's like four people asking you to do something and you're like i don't know how to log on yet i just um, work here man <laughs> yeah like i i don't know what to do um you know and it's so it, there's a learning curve, I think, but it's been really, um, really fun so far. Like I, I really felt like, you know, having the ability to kind of start taking care of patients and starting to kind of have, you know, building your own relationship as their doctor um, has been really, really rewarding in just six weeks at this point, yeah. I guess. That's, yeah, six weeks. That's awesome, man. The, um, yeah, I would imagine because, Surgery is a very vague term in a sense, because surgery can encapsulate a lot of things outside of like the specialty route, like an orthopedic surgeon or a, you know, ACL reconstruction or whatever it may be. So it sounds like vague in general, as surgery may sound, you have to have a very wide scope of knowledge because that surgery could range from a number of things. It sounds like. Yeah. Um, so I'm in the general surgery program. And like you said, there are like orthopedic programs where it's just, you know, bone and musculoskeletal conditions. Um, the general surgery route is a little more general. So um, there's a lot more medicine and physiology, I think, involved in that uh, residency training pathway. Um, it's it's definitely really cool, like the amount of the variety that you see. Um, I imagine. And so it's I love it. Like, I, I think I'm having, even after long hours, I'm having a great time at the end of the day on most days, some days yeah, yeah. highs and lows, um, <laughs> but, but overall it's been good. What all like encapsulates general surgery? Like, would that be like hernia surgery? Like what, what, what kind of fits in that, in that lens? So I can kind of conceptualize that. Sure. Um, belly. And um, that's, I guess okay. the best way that I would explain it. Um, belly surgery. So your hernias, your gallbladders, your appendix, um, now with the way medicine is kind of slowly evolving is there's more and more subspecialists. And so, you know, if let's say a patient has colon cancer, technically that falls under the general surgery scope. We work on the colon and the intestine, but there's also after general surgery, there are people that will subspecialize to a fellowship into colorectal surgery. Gotcha. And so it's like general surgery is like this big umbrella where over the five to seven years, I'll get exposure and training in all these different areas. Mm -hmm. And then if I wanted to practice as more of a generalist, take care of some colons, take care of some appendix, some gallbladder, some hernias, I could remain in that general field. Or if I really wanted to say, you know, I want to become really advanced in my training at colon surgery. I could do a fellowship after general surgery in the colorectum. Gotcha. Um, so like there's another one like HPB, which is hepatobiliary surgery, hepatopancreabiliary. Um, but essentially what that is, is your liver, your gallbladder, and your pancreas, which again, fall under the general surgery um, box. But some more advanced and specialized procedures are under those kind of subspecialty. Uh, gotcha. Training. Gotcha. That's nice so that you have, if you find something like you really find a niche, right? Ooh, like I really like this. You have the opportunity to then go in and become more advanced in your profession, or I guess advanced in your surgical practice if you'd like to, to help people in that particular area. 
Exactly. Exactly. It's a, I like that aspect of it, um, that you get that wide training and as time goes, as kind of, I mature in my, um, surgical education, I can kind of see what suits me best. That's very cool, man. The, um, yeah, I've, I've also more so on the orthopedic side, I find medical stuff very fascinating. The human body is, is such an amazing thing. And so, you know, I've, I've watched the, uh, in class, like the ACL reconstructions and the knee reconstructions, man. And it's just, it's amazing. But what we can do first and foremost, like someone who they come in and their knee is the size of a cinder block. And then, you know, six, eight months later, they're out on the field again. And it's like, wow, like the, the things that we can do today, man, is, is amazing. So I imagine that's probably a surreal feeling when you get to witness and participate in these things that are saving people's lives and improving their quality of life overall. Yeah, it's the, the reward is definitely worth the, the time and the training. I think when you, um, we were a few of my co-residents and I were reminiscing on just the, the feeling when you see a patient in clinic you know, a, a couple weeks after their operation, whatever operation it may be. And, you know, they're telling you like they're essentially the belly pain they've been dealing with for months or years is gone. Wow. And, you know, you, you like, it's a very simple clinic visit from our perspective where you like make sure they're doing okay and we're happy for them and we're checking up on them, making sure things look good. But you look at that and you're just like, you know, you walk away and you're like, you know, we, we did something for this person. And in my eyes, kind of from the personal training background, I look at that and I'm like, this person now can exercise. Hey, that's uh, right. You know, one of those barriers to, to moving and being mobile and taking the stairs instead of the elevators, you know, those things, if you have chronic abdominal pain that worsens when you move, probably not going to want to take the stairs. But yeah, now absolutely. maybe we can. And so for me, I see that as kind of a lot of ways where you get that that satisfaction and it's really, really helping someone. Yeah, man. One of the top self-reported reasons people don't participate in physical activity is disability. And so, you know, there's a lot of people in this country and globally as well, but, you know, keeping it to the States here for us that have disabilities, man. They have abdominal pain. They have a secondary or primary medical condition that whether it's the side effects of the medicine or just like the primary issues of the disease itself, it's like, you know, exercise is already hard enough as it is. It's like, oh, let's add on like, you know, throbbing headaches and knee pain and X, Y, and Z. It's like, no wonder people don't want to exercise because it freaking sucks for them. And so being able to kind of like help alleviate or even in some cases, which is so cool, like eliminate that barrier for people that's got to feel so good, man. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely, it's, it's one of those, one of those things that I think I at least look back at as definitely a why for me when I came into the medical field and, and even personal training was one of those whys was that feeling. Um, of, I feel like it's really hard to explain um when you're asked to put it in words right they're like why do you want to be a doctor why do you want to be a personal trainer and like i can see that moment where i'm like that's why you know when uh i remember one of my old clients their biggest goal was to take the stairs to like their the seventh or eighth floor in, in the math department they were like i want to be able to take the stairs but i can't i take the elevators and 
you know, six months later, he's telling me how, you know, he does it twice on his way up and down. Like he gets there a little early so he can take the stairs. And he was just so happy, That's you know, to be able to say like, I'm taking the stairs now and it's not hard. Yeah. And I think those like moments, I think build people's why yes. in what they do. And One. so I, that's what I really fell in love with with it. I think what also is a good selling point for you and in general is that you're someone I know who's active, like, and not, and this is no, no disrespect to doctors at all, but like not all medical professionals and even not all coaches are active people. And so when you're trying to ask people to make changes, number one, just like how personal trainers are hugely ignorant of the medical system. Sometimes doctors, because they're so specialized in their field, they don't know everything about exercise because they're not trained in detail about it. And so it's already hard to make recommendations as it is. But on top of that, it's hard to talk about it because if you don't practice it, it's hard to speak. You know about it because you have a coaching background and a passion for fitness and you actively do it. And so I feel like for you, that's like, oh, look, my doctor is someone who's active, someone who I look up to, someone in a position of power or role model. Like that's got to be helpful as well. I think so. I hope so. Um, I try and share whatever personal experiences that I can um, with patients or clients when we're talking about, um, you know, the on the topic of like motivational interviewing, talking about lifestyle modifications. Um, it can be hard, I think, to relate to a lot of people. Like when you think about specifics, like I, I, I can't relate to someone, for example, in a specific on context of like chronic low back pain. Fortunately, mm -hmm. I've not um, had any um, issues with low back pain at this point in my life. But I think the the thing that you can relate to is there are times when we have to push through and there yeah. are times when, you know, it's not going to feel great. And sometimes it's got to get worse before it gets better. You're going to feel sore mm. setting the stage for those kinds of things. Um, I think really helps. Um, a common conversation I've had is um, I had a patient that said they felt like they didn't want to exercise because it made them sore and they hurt. Right. And realizing like that this was something that wasn't nobody on the team had really communicated with this patient that that's, okay, like after yeah. physical therapy comes and sees you and they push you and they make you work hard, um, that the next day you might have some musculoskeletal soreness. Yeah. And just sitting down and being like, hey, like, you know, the last time I hit legs, I like me walking around this unit did not look <laughs> great. Like I, you know, me taking the stairs, like looked really messed up. And so I think just like having that conversation and personalization with like uh, a patient and saying like, it's okay to be sore. Yeah. Um, it's okay to kind of have some of these barriers to exercise. Some pain is normal. Yes. Um, and really kind of eliciting the difference between pain from, you know, positive proprioception mm -hmm. and pain from adaptation from pain from injury or noxious stimuli in other words and so i think those like conversations have been really helpful in kind of relating that look at you with those pain science terms dog noxious <laughs> stimuli i love to hear that but no you're you're 100 right man it's the that's a conversation i have to have with people where people when i have clients like oh it hurts i'm like does it hurt or is this 
effort. And like, so obviously, you know, maybe me and you, because I've I played basketball with you. I know. I think we're a little bit of masochists. Like you kind of, you kind of like the feeling of being, being a little <laughs> sore or like pushing yourself where your lungs burn. And I get that. It's not for the general person. But again, having that conversation of like, hey, first couple of weeks, like, yeah, it might suck a little bit. We're going to try to mitigate that as best as possible. But there's really no way around in the very beginning to like avoid any kind of sense of fatigue and soreness and like quote unquote pain. Right. But understanding that like the human body is resilient, man. You, I mean, you're in the surgery department, like people get cut open, you remove or repair parts of the body. And then you come out and what happens? You feel better long-term. And so understanding that this is a natural process, your training, this feeling of pain, soreness, fatigue, et cetera, is normal and will subside and get better over time. And ultimately you are doing your mind and body a service and getting better by doing that. And then having you there as a reference, like you could say, you can relate to them on a personal, like, yeah, man, like uh, you're going to watch me. I'm going to be like kind of doing a little limp here for the day. Cause I am sore for the day. And that I think goes a long way for people like, Oh, okay. My, my doc understands he gets it. I'm, I'm going to take his advice. Yeah, absolutely. That's cool, man. That's so cool. Now, I also find it really cool because, again, like I said, you know, you you walk the walk and talk the talk, man, because you're active. How we kind of talked about time a little bit. So, like, as someone who has gone through med school and is like in residency, like, what does that look like for you training wise? Is it you mentioned like, hey, I got 10 minutes to do push ups and planks? Like, do you kind of just work out when you can and it's kind of like whatever I can do? Do you have like a structured regimen? Like, what does training look like for you because of your your crunch timeline? Sure. Um, so, you know, I think. From outside looking in, I think if I was another personal trainer looking at what it is I'm doing, I think it would be, I'd find it like as an interesting thought experiment. Um, okay. I've been creative over the past several years, I, I like to think. Um, you know, I came out of Purdue and I had a very structured um, lifting regimen that, you know, circled around Olympic lifts, um, snatches, cleans, Um a lot of functional movements and it was also dependent on the gym I had. Mm. Um, that gym at Purdue, we were talking about earlier, so nice. Um, at, everything. At everything, everything that I could possibly want. It was like you know, a <laughs> kid in a candy store. Everything yeah. was there. Um, now through medical school, I had a different gym. It wasn't as accessible. It wasn't as nice, um, but it was there. And it kind of the first thing I had to do was, you know, change some of the the movements to fit the gym. Um, and, you know, I didn't need to do any single leg pistol squats on a BOSU ball. Um, I got away with some free form exercises with barbells and dumbbells. And as far as so that's kind of like, I guess, the, the structure of what I did. I really started to circle around what equipment that I had mm -hmm. and you know, what kinds of exercises. Yeah. You worked with what you had available. Exactly. Um, and then as far as time, you know, I think it really like challenged me to first off prioritize fitness. Um, and it was one thing that I will tell all my mentees in medical school is to write down their like five non-negotiables, um, mm. over their time in medical school. And it's okay. I, I say non-negotiables, but we have to negotiate them sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. But the idea is you write it down on a piece of paper. And one of my non-negotiables was, and I remember coming into medical school, it was like, you know, five hours a week of like dedicated physical activity. And it 
helped kind of center that like over some of those harder months where you're like i feel like i don't have time you know looking mm -hmm. at that and saying you know this like extra 20 minutes that i feel like i need to study for something is it worth that 20 minutes is it truly worth it or is it kind of me and my kind of internal stress and driver to say i need to study that for 20 minutes yep and kind of asking myself and saying what if i prioritize my personal health right now um and so that's kind of the first aspect of it of how that kind of progressed through medical school was learning to prioritize it and being okay prioritizing it um the second i think part of it was the actual finding time to exercise um and so that was uh, just <laughs> interesting um you know it, it was a lot of trial and error and so when i mentioned this to clients in similar, similar situations, I really try and focus on like imperfection is perfection with this. Like the only thing that you can look for is being adaptable. Yes. Um, you know, there were, it was really frustrating coming out of Purdue thinking like, you know, I'm going to have this progressive overload regimen <laughs> for cleans. Like I'm going to come out and I'm going to be deadlifting you know, four plates or something like yeah, that was yeah. like the mindset. I, I was very numbers oriented. I really like wanted to know what my progression looked like. And then like having to like realize and say it, you know, I may not, I don't have four plates in this gym. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to find a different way to make that happen and kind of be okay with what I have. If that makes, I don't know if that makes sense. Yes. No, that makes complete like, sense, man. It's, it's shifting your perspective on like what you thought was going to be your goal at that time. Because yeah. like you said, the biggest thing I tell coaches is like the, the number one quality you can have as a coach is to be adaptable. It's like my top line, because again, you know, Purdue Corec, like you have access to everything. It's like you said, kid at candy shop. I can, I have such free range. Well, if I have an online client that only has access to two 20 pound dumbbells and okay, well, now we're not going to be able to deadlift 315. But what can I do to help still get them towards their goal, given my constraints? Exactly, exactly. And that's, I think, what it really boiled down to over those four years. And even now in residency, um, you know, the working on average 80 hours per week um, is, it takes time, I think, um, to kind of plan and prioritize health. But the thing that I really would love to just I will keep holding on to this is I think that that hour or 30 minutes that you put into the tank for yourself, you get more than 30 minutes to an hour back. So, you know, it's something that I feel like, at least in my world, medical students struggle with a lot is I don't have the 30 minutes to exercise because I have to do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And I fight back by saying, so you have to study for 30 minutes, but what if I told it for an hour? What if I told you, you know, you could study that instead of taking an hour to learn all that, maybe it only takes you 45 minutes or 30 minutes because you are cognitively more with it. Your retention yes. is better. Your sleep is better. You are supplying yourself with better nutritious foods. And now, you know, you can get through that PowerPoint one time. You don't have to really watch it because you're cognitively functioning on all cylinders because you took care of yourself. And so that's kind of what I think helped me through medical school is really just realizing that even when it doesn't feel like it, putting that investment into your own health carries forward 
cognitively and and really at the other part of your life. I love that man. Graduate assistant Damien from 2018, well, specifically 2018 to 2019, really needed to hear that statement. So yeah, I had this mindset that, you know, more hours of work was more productive work. And that is honestly, I'd say for the most part, further from the truth. It's how efficient can you be at your work? And so what I was doing, you know, I was maybe maybe consistently exercising once a week for a minute there when it was getting rough. I had a, a supervisor get another position. So I was a little bit on my own at times. And I was like coming in at, you know, as a GA, you work 20 hours per week in quotations. Uh, I was coming in at, you know, between 9 and 11 a.m. and working till 10, 11 p.m. every day. Uh, and it was... <laughs> The volume of, of engagement at Purdue was crazy. I'll never forget in January alone, this just this number six in my head, we had over over 100 people sign up for personal training in January 2019. That is not an exaggeration. That is a actual tangible number. I couldn't believe it. And the person who handled all the pairings and the communication engagement as one aspect of my job was me. And so that was insane. And so I'd be there at 10 o'clock at night. And I remember every night people would come by like, are you still here? Like, what are you doing? And I'm like sending emails. And it got to the point, Puni, where I would reread the email and I couldn't spell correctly. Like I got to the point where I'm like typing, I'm like, good afternoon. I'm saying the wrong name. I'm like misspelling like simple words. And like the amount of time it took me to send and review a proper email and I would still make a mistake. It's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, you are no longer productive with your time. You have this like idea in your head that like you're grinding it out and like you need to work these hours to like show that you're valuable as a worker. It's like, but now I'm not even exercising. I'm like barely eating. I'm like having two meals a day. If that I'm caffeinated the hell up. So it's like, now I'm like wired and can't even get proper sleep. Um, and my quality of work is going down, which that's the whole reason I'm doing this is because I want to do better work. And when I, prioritized now ever since like graduating from grad school is like you sacrifice a little bit of time towards work for yourself your work quality goes up the amount of time you need to have that quality work goes down and so it's a win-win where something that would have taken me you know two three four hours i can bang out in an hour now because my mind and my body are prepared to do that laborious work versus where i'm sleep deprived i'm nutrient deprived and i am just burnt out and I can't even function properly. I I feel like that's that's something that needs to be heard around the world. Um, so I love that that is on a podcast for people to hear um, because it's it's a snowball effect. You know, you when the ball is rolling in the right direction, things start looking really good. You know, you get ahead of the sleep game, you get ahead yeah. of, you know, the exercise, getting 15 or 20 minutes, you know, just to grind out some push-ups before going into work, you know, something as simple as that sets the stage for my day. Makes mm -hmm. me feel like, you know, even if I don't get off at a reasonable time to get into the gym today for the workout I wanted, I can say I got something done. Um, and mentally that makes me feel better, but there's also like a lot of physiologic benefit. Like you had mentioned, um, you know, it takes you less time. That's like not just anecdote, right? That's like researched evidence-based claim that yeah. cognitively we are better when we are exercising. 
um, our retention is better, long-term and short-term. Our judgment-making, um, our, our ability to make judgments in high-stressful situations, much better when yes. we have exercised and we have sleep, slept well. And for me, that's something that I'm like harping on for anyone in the medical field. I'm like, let's maybe, you know, take care of ourselves so we can take care of our patients. Exactly. Um, right. Take care of yourself yeah. so you can be a better practitioner. Right. Yes. yes. And I, I like that you term that I, I've been doing this, but I haven't had a term for it. So now I'm going to steal that from you. Thank you. Is your non-negotiables. Right. And so like yes. people who know me, it's like I, in order to combat those unhealthy behaviors I had in grad school, people know I'm a very regimented, like calendar note based person, all my main meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, my sleep time and my workouts are all in my calendar. And those are non-negotiable as Puneet said, like, yeah, there's times where it's like, I got a deadline coming up for like, you know, a clothing release or this new program or project, whatever it is, I'm sleeping four hours at night. You eat it, right? And Puni, four hours probably, he's like, oh, that sounds amazing. I'm salivating <laughs> over there. That sounds like a good amount of time, right? For Coach D over here, you know, seven hours is my sweet spot. I usually do about six-ish hours Monday through Thursday, and then I get a little bit more on the weekend. But, you know, there's some times where you got to eat it and do four or five hours a couple of nights in a row. That's okay because you got to get stuff done. But I'd say 90% plus, it's like I'm going to bed and making sure I get my six hours minimum. I'm always making sure I eat. And even when I'm busy at work and I have a million things I can do, I can like push off food. I'm like, no, I know that I'm going to get crabby and I'm not going to perform well. And I'm going to be thinking about food. Let me take just 10 to 15 minutes and eat my food. Cause I know it's gonna make me a better worker. And of course, exercise. I always prioritize my exercise, even when I'm not feeling the best. And this isn't like the, you know, I, for those like David Goggins, this isn't like a David Goggins feel where it's like, you just got to suck it up. Like, even if you're sick and dying, it's like, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, you know, going even when you feel like you don't want to go because I built a habit of it, just like brushing your teeth, just like washing your face, you know, doing things that you may necessarily not want to do in the moment, but you're doing it because you know, it's good for you and you've built the habit to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. Yes, sir. I want to get a couple last things. So again, you have that, that dual role. That, that doctor lens and that, and that kind of personal training lens. So do you give one piece of advice to each of them? And this can be vague, you know, like if you're talking to a young trainer, you know, what would you tell them from like the medical lens? And if you're talking to a doctor, what's that one piece of advice you give them from, from beneath the coach kind of lens to kind of help them? So I think to the trainer, um, I think, you know, I, I think both ways, I think the advice is very similar is to be humble in your role. Um, as you know, if you are a person's personal trainer, you know, be humble to say, you may not know what's going on with their medical care. You may not know even just their basic personal training stuff. You may not know it all. Um, and you know, as a personal trainer, I think it was easier for me to say that, mm -hmm. um, in the medical world, it feels a lot harder to say, I don't know. Yeah. But it's something that I've gotten very comfortable doing six weeks in is saying, <laughs> I got to look that up. I don't know. And, I, you know, I'm going to learn. it. Um, but kind of on the note of people's physical health and, you know, the personal training blend between um, medicine and exercise, I think just being humble in your role. Um, physicians, you know, when we counsel on lifestyle modifications, being understanding that, you know, 
we don't know it all, um, you know, especially when it comes to designing a personal training program that's not covered in medical school. Mm-hmm. Like it's not, you know, can we tell you what's in the liver and you know the enzymes there? You know, sure, but it's not going to help someone, you know, get under a barbell. And to be frank, I think many of my colleagues would agree. I don't think they're comfortable teaching somebody how to do a barbell back squat. Um, it's not covered. Uh, and, you know, progressive overload, it's not covered. Yeah. You know, it sounds like a common sense theme when you're a personal trainer, but it's not something that's actually covered in medical training. Mm-hmm. And I think an important piece then for physicians is to take a step back and say, that wasn't covered. Somebody else is the expert on this. And, you know, you're there to help guide that conversation. You're there to help the personal trainer, you know, make an effective program to say, Hey, this person has heart failure and diabetes. You know, those exercises that you have written down after looking at it, maybe on YouTube, if you don't know what those exercises are and being like, Oh, I don't actually want my patient laying flat. That's not good for their heart and lungs. Mm-hmm. So please adjust. Right. Writing that on a piece of paper and sending it to the personal trainer, the personal trainer can help you know, navigate that. And I think the flip side of that then is for the personal trainer to ask questions, right? <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean laying flat's not okay? Can they lay on their stomach? Can they lay on their back? You know, my patients or my clients pregnant, like, what does that mean for their physical activity you know, level? What can I have them do? What can they not do? Mm. And, you know, so I think it's a bit bi-directional that, you know, physicians and trainers, that's what I would want them to to kind of, you know, it might have been a long-winded answer to that, but I think it's very important to kind of respect your wheelhouse and respect somebody else's and just, it should be a collaboration um, constantly. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's I think it's definitely harder for for doctors, but I think there's certainly that that same feeling. I like I go back to that term you said being humble. You know, I I've experienced that where, you know, I remember like I mentioned my my very first client ever, she had PCOS and she was, you know, uh dealing with obesity and so for a 19-year-old and this first client, it was it was daunting. And it all worked out thankfully, but I remember like the amount of like time and energy attention I went into when it probably would have served me better to like contact someone and get like the, you know, the skinny on what to do exactly. Um, or at least just to get some advice to understand it a little bit better. And that's not to discourage coaches from being in the know, like you should know, like generally like what is asthma and how it impacts people, you know, type two diabetes and some considerations when increasing exercise intensity and arthritis and how resistance training can impact people. That's important. There's no separating the medical world from the fitness world. But I like how you also said like being humble and also like staying in your lane in a respectful way. It's like, you don't have to, nor should you know everything on both sides. And by building those relationships, like, you know, meeting people who are RDs and, and, you know, registered or registered dietitians rather, and who are doctors and who are psychological counselors, like that then gives you a network to better serve your client. And I think what happens is subconsciously or not, or unconsciously or not, you know, there's ego. And so you're like, you know, this person's coming to me, I'm the professional, even your client might think like my, my coach or my doctor knows everything. And you feel like you have to provide and be that source that knows everything. And that's impossible. And so to go ask someone else for help, it starts hurting your ego, maybe a little bit like, man, am I like, am I not like, you know, 
intelligent enough? Am I not like able to serve them enough? And I'd argue it's the opposite. And that to best serve is to stay in your lane relatively, get as good at your craft as possible and know when you need help because then you can offshoot all that extra work or work that you literally cannot do anyway and find someone else who's better at it to help you do it. So being humble, I think is, is a huge thing. And the power of saying, I don't know, like, is, is so good, man. Like I always tell people, like, if you have a coach that always says they know everything, I put in like one of my, my red flag posts. It's like, yeah, I mean, you might have someone who's very knowledgeable, but even myself, someone who's been in the field for, you know, eight years, it's like, that's a little bit of a red flag, man. That makes me think you use car salesman. It's like, you always have an answer for everything immediately and never like have to look anything up. Mm, little sus, a little sus. Have an individualized answer that we can take some research that was probably done on a similar patient mm-hmm. population or my population, and we can try to apply it to said person, but it's not perfect. Yeah. And that research has its limitations. But unfortunately, sometimes what happens is that, you know, large study gets boiled down to a blog post on <laughs> some random, you know, Google hit, uh, you know, a top 10 search. <laughs> and has this opinions and expert opinions kind of intertwined and in how they interpreted the literature. And then it's a paragraph at the top. Yep. It says, this is what this means. And it's not by a professional, it's by a blogger, for the lack of better terms. And then that becomes, for some people, the mantra of like what they're going to interpret that study to mean. Yeah. And I, again, I understand the temptation because people are coming to you and oftentimes it's the the pressures to, to no fault the client. It's like their expectation, like my doctor knows, my, my trainer should know the answer to this. And it's like, I'd imagine it's similar to any field, but especially in a, in a science and a human science field, where like you said, there is a lot of gray area and nuance. It's like, you don't have to know and nor will you know everything. And so I think if you phrase it the right way about like how you are saying, I don't know, but I'll find the answer for you and how I want to do you a service and you stay engaging and entertaining in a productive way, people will have a lot more respect for you in the long term. versus like, you know, you have this, like you said, the, the blog poster who like knows everything and writes the very sexy and appealing article. It's like, man, how do I compete with that? Because they seem confident and knowledgeable. It's like, the truth always comes out in the end. And so don't worry so about right. if you if you don't know it right now because your honesty and integrity will follow through so long as you can still carry over those soft skills and that engagement and all those other things. So don't don't worry about what other people are doing in that regard. Absolutely. And yeah, man, kind of just the last thing I want to touch on. So, you know, again, as we look through you being kind of in both worlds still actively, which is amazing, you know, where do you see like the future of how exercise and medicine works together? I know you're kind of doing it yourself a little bit with the online clientele and then having that medical background, but is there something you see coming down the pipeline or like a dream that you have as someone in both worlds? Like, where do you see the future going? Oh, I have dreams. Um, <laughs> I have dreams about the the health and fitness world and the, you know, bridging the gaps much of what you know you do too um where we kind of bridge the gaps and be evidence-based in our practice and change the culture um or i should say shift um yes um but you know as far as what i would love to see is a a really is personal trainers being 
part of the healthcare team. Like not not necessarily like this kind of soft saying that personal trainers are part of the healthcare setting. I want it to be a thing that you go to a doctor's office and really big position and there's a personal trainer that is in-house. You know, we have mm. dietitians um, in, in physical therapists. <laughs> physical therapists and and they each have their expertise and role in helping patients. Um, And I'd love to see that continue to expand as well to see, you know, more dietitians and more physical therapists in those settings, but personal trainers too. I I see no reason why, you know, some of these larger uh, clinics that have, you know, maybe six or seven family practice physicians or sports medicine docs working out of a clinic and they have one dietitian that's there. Mm-hmm. Why not have one personal trainer there available? Um, you know, that can stay at the end of the visit. You know, you can say like, we always say like, bring up a nutritionist, come see you before you leave to go over some healthy foods. Yeah. Why not have a personal trainer come by and, you know, in five or 10 or 15 minutes, go through some like three or four basic physical exercises that they can do and set some realistic, smart goals right that they can you know achieve you know take the stairs go through tangible goals with patients and so that's like the long kind of viewpoint um i hope that that's something that we achieve in in our lifetimes um and that's part of what i'm trying to do with uh the the personal training that i run service i run is trying to start that communication line and make it more natural for both doctors and personal trainers to pick up the phone, you know, and have a person-to-person conversation about a patient's needs, yeah. you know, from a fitness standpoint, from a um, medical standpoint. And, you know, sometimes doctors are good at motivational interviewing. Sometimes they're not, you know, they're not the best person because there are other limiting factors like time. And sometimes a personal trainer is the person that the patient is going to listen to um, because there are stereotypes about doctors and stereotypes about personal trainers. Mm -hmm. And one that may work in a personal trainer's favor is that my doctor just wants to give me prescriptions, you know, Um, and it's a common one where we say, I talked about lifestyle modifications for two minutes. And then I prescribed the hypertension medicine and then the patient left. Yeah. Um, and maybe if you spent 20 minutes to talk about how cardiovascular exercise can reduce the need for a pill um, to treat your hypertension, that person would do it and they wouldn't need the medicine. But time is a limiting factor. And so if we can have that set up to have, you know, a personal trainer that has hundreds of these conversations about how we can get them active in that setting right there. They may want to listen to that. They may listen to that, love it, exercise, not need hydrochlorothiazide or whatever that, you know, hypertension medicine that's being prescribed at the time is. Um, And I think they would really appreciate that too. Yeah. It's one of those things I've had this conversation before with, um, one of my professors about like, you know, how do we move that needle forward? Like I've been to conferences where they talk about at ACSM where certain clinics or, or outpatient places may have like a gym adjacent to it, where maybe patients can get prescribed or told to go there afterwards. You know, I wonder if it's like, do we make 
do we keep personal training certifications the way they are for like the general public, but maybe make a licensure for the medical field? And if that's if that's not already available, or sorry, if that is already available, you know, maybe this isn't a new idea, but hey, if you want to work like in a doctor's office or in a hospital, a licensed coach, a licensed fitness professional, and then having like a fitness facility on site at every hospital to where for the patients who are able to, of course, right, you know, IVs and, and medical complications aside, you can go to the personal trainer just like how when the PT walks in or when the dietitian walks in, it's like, Hey, at 2 PM today, you're scheduled to go down to the gym. There are two, three trainers on staff who constantly are there for you. They have like your file on, they have notes from the doctor and they're going to run you through a 30 minute program for the day. Like that to me would be extraordinarily beneficial. And I know with licensure, it gets sticky because it's like, you know, is it a state by state thing? Um, it's more money and resources and it's going to be a barrier to entry. But I think I've, as of right now, I've come to the conclusion that I'd rather have less people, but are more qualified. And as you like start making it more difficult to get there, probably the, the level of care is higher versus having a lot of bodies. And it's just like lower quality of training and like, maybe not as like valued of what they want to do. So I, I think that's possibly a route it could go if it's not already happening. So we'll, we'll see. I, like that. I mean, that if I could second another dream would be you know i'm looking at my patient's chart and it says you know i see the note from the physical therapist and then right underneath it i see a note from the personal trainer you know the patient went down to the hospital gym this is what we did you mm -hmm. know and you know i don't think it's a, a you know a revelation that exercise would probably decrease hospital stay, decrease total cost of care, mm -hmm. um, decrease complications, all of those things. I mean, we, there's plenty of research on the matter of like exercising before a major abdominal surgery. And what does that lead to afterwards um, yeah. or adequate nutrition prior to surgery? Um, and postoperatively, you know, we talk about like a simple complication, like a blood clot in the legs, mm -hmm. you know, from laying in bed and not getting up. They talk about that for airplanes, right? If you sit on an airplane for a long period of time, everyone's like, "Whoa, you're going to get a blood clot. <laughs> um, and so it's, you know, stand up, walk around. And that's essentially the treatment or preventative measure that you can mm -hmm. take for that. And so, you know, after an operation, we walk around and we're like, did you get up and walk today? Um, mm -hmm. It's a simple question that we're asking because we're really wanting to prevent blood clots and many other things that come with basics of just getting up and walking around. And so I would love to see a personal trainer walking in and saying, Hey, you know, you're scheduled for some exercise today with me and we're going to go to the gym downstairs. But like you said, the barrier to entry, I think is a interesting discussion on, on how to make this happen. Um, yeah. As far as like my personal training practice, it's definitely something that I'm actively trying to figure out myself um, in the trainers that I kind of bring aboard to work with because it's, I want trainers that are as excited as me to learn this stuff. Um, but with that, there's not as many, it's harder to find. Of there's course. a lot of trainers that are excited and, you know, really good at what they do, but it's, it's harder to find trainers that you can look at and say, I trust you to ask questions when you need help 
to actively learn and you know to do that it's a little harder to find i feel like yeah man but I, i ultimately think you know your passion and purpose of being, you know, in both fields, you're going to draw those people to you, man. And so I'm very excited to see your continuation through residency and ultimately like where the coaching side of things goes, man. Like I said, that, that makes me very excited to see that you're still in both worlds. So, you know, props to you, man. And I'm, I'm going to keep tabs to make sure I see how it's going. And uh, yeah, best of luck to you in all things, my man. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. Do you want to let the people know anything that you want to plug where people can find you? I know you mentioned that that website that you have again, if you want to mention that as well. Sure. Um, finding me, um, I, I have a website, path2.fit. That's where you'll find all of uh, the personal training services that um, me and my team will offer. Um, I don't have a social media presence yet for kind of the professional aspect. Um, I do have a book that's out um, on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. It is called Fitness Made Simple. Um, and it basically is kind of a simplified text. I, I shouldn't really even call it a text. It's not a textbook. Please don't look at it like a textbook. It's it's a book on essentially just finding your fitness journey and getting started. Um, and it kind of goes through some research, but it's, it's pretty um, bird's eye perspective of the research. We get into some nitty gritty, but it's really about making those first steps towards your fitness journey. Um, you know, the, the thing that I will quote at the end of it is a thing called the path to fit principles, um, which are kind of the 10 small steps or principles I like to say are important. Um, I won't bore us with, uh, going through all 10 of them right now, but essentially it's the simple stuff. So drinking water, you know, and why, mm-hmm. right? Um, we'll talk about the cognitive stuff that we mentioned here too, about how exercise and sleep have a bi-directional um, relationship. And so if you want to check it out, it's on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. It's called Fitness Made Simple. And I think that's really all that I have for plugs that I would mention. Awesome, man. I'll be sure to put all those links down in the description below for y'all to check it out. Again, y'all know where to find me, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube shorts at the underscore shift underscore method. Again, we got two videos every week, a YouTube style and a podcast style. So be sure to check those out. You know, the website, the shiftmethod.org for all the apparel, for all the programming, for all the consultations that y'all might be interested in. Just click any of those take action buttons and I'll be able to get back to you with some coaching inquiries. So we got doctor, coach, and author, Puneet. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much for your time, man. You enjoy that day off, all right? Well, I will. Thank you so much for having me, Damien. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Later, everyone.